0: Um, Let's open up with a word of prayer. Isaiah 40, uh, verses 12 through 14 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge? Father, we're, we're so grateful that we can come here and just learn more about who you are. We thank you that you've given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us. I pray that you would enlighten our eyes, that you would give us minds to comprehend who you are, and Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to worship you as a result. We thank you for this time together and pray that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we come to the topic of God's knowledge And does everyone have a handout? Does anyone need a handout? Thanks, Alex. So God's knowledge. God's knowledge is infinite. The term commonly associated with God's knowledge is omniscience, which means all-knowing. Probably my, my first experience with omniscience I would guess y'all's first experience with omniscience is um, a Santa Claus um, because he was keeping his list and he checked it twice. He knew who was naughty and who's nice, and so I had this concept of God as being all-knowing, not God, of <laughs> Santa Claus as being all-knowing, um, and uh, that was soon shattered, and it was replaced with my mom, who I thought was omniscient for a while. <laughs> Uh, I soon realized that she wasn't omniscient. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's right, you're supposed to display his character, yeah. (laughs) Um, Both of those concepts of omniscience, however, pale in comparison to we come to the topic of God's knowledge. And uh, so that's what we're going to dig into today. Um, God's knowledge is actually linked very closely with sovereignty and and if I were omniscient, I would have realized this beforehand and done God's sovereignty and God's omniscience together. But um, perhaps next time I'll put those together. Uh, but yeah, so if God is all, God is not all knowing because um, God did an in-depth study of everything. He's all knowing because He created everything. Um, he knows each thing because He made it. He sustains it. He makes it function in every moment according to His plan for it. And therefore, God is omniscient. He knows all things. Um, Our passage today is going to be Psalm 139. So if you'll turn there, this is going to kind of be our base camp. We'll come back here from time to time, but we'll also be throughout the entire Bible. But um, this is going to be our passage for today, Psalm 139. And in this psalm, David meditates on God's knowledge. He meditates on God's knowledge. He's amazed by God's knowledge, how infinite his knowledge is. But you'll see three things in this psalm. Number one, the truth of God's knowledge. Number two, the threat of God's knowledge. And number three, the joy of God's knowledge. So that's where we're heading today. First, let's start off before we get into Psalm 139. Let me give you a definition of God's knowledge. (coughs) This definition comes from... Grudem's systematic theology it is that God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act let me kind of break this down and we'll go through what this means. And as we do that, we'll look at Psalm 139. Um, The first part of this is that God fully knows himself. That's A. God fully knows himself. This is a seemingly self-evident statement, but it's really amazing when you think about the fact that God knows himself. Um, Because God is infinite, which means he's unlimited. And for us, um, the the fact that someone could comprehend God is unfathomable, and yet God comprehends Himself perfectly. Second Corinthians, flip. The, I'm sorry, First Corinthians. Turn there quickly, chapter two. verses 10 11. Paul writes, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in himself? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So we see Paul pointing out the fact that God understands and he knows himself fully. Um, this is also implied when John, and this is in both First John and the Gospel of John, refers to God as light. He says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Light here has, in context, has two, two meanings. One is a moral, so God is light, he's moral purity, but also God is understanding. God is light, he knows everything, and in him there is no darkness. Um, okay. Secondly, B. God fully knows all things, I'm sorry, all things actual, the second part of the definition. God knows all things actual. Simply, what this means basically is that God knows everything that exists and everything that happens. And if you would, flip back to Job. We saw a glimpse of this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at God's response to Job. Job 38. Verses 2 through 7. So God knows all things actual. Everything that happens, God knows. Job bright, or in the book of Job, you have written, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? This is God responding to, to Job. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and, you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched out the line upon it? Or what were its on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, he goes on. You could read this whole chapter, and it all talks about how infinite God's knowledge is, and we really see here uh, that God has a perfect knowledge of His creation in Job thirty-eight. <coughs> God is the master architect and builder. He created creation, and he did it perfectly. And if you think about, I mean, there are people who we were watching the documentary um, about a week ago, and uh, the we, there was this person who's de- devoted their whole life to studying one bug. Um, imagine that. You could spend your whole life studying one bug. That's a whole different topic, but the <laughs> um, but you have, there's so much knowledge out there that God has infinite knowledge. God doesn't have to study this bug his entire life. He knows perfectly in one instant everything about this bug and everything else in his creation. Um, and those of you who've ever tried to construct something or build something, uh, you'll appreciate this. Um, how many times do we set out to build something or remodel something, and the end product is not exactly like the plans? Um, <laughs> because we are not omniscient. In fact, when you, when you engage in a remodeling project, um, if you hire someone to do that, they will build into their bid a contingency. Basically what that means is, they're ignorant. Um, <laughs> Of some aspect, there's a built-in ignorance fee, um, basically, that you can't foresee everything that might happen, and so you have to build in a protection as a, as a remodeler or a builder. Um, so, and, and then God never needs a punch list when he's done building because everything's done perfectly. And all this points back to God's knowledge. God is infinitely wise, he knows everything, he knows every possibility, and so everything he does is perfect. Okay, secondly, God knows what we do or think, or do and think, Psalm 139. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. So David's acknowledging that God knows everything about David. He knows when he sits down. He knows when he rises up. He even knows his thoughts from afar. God knows what you do and what you think. God even knows the tiny details of our lives. If you would, flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Verse 8 says, um, Jesus is talking and he's talking about not worrying. He says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need. When does he know? Before you ask him. So God knows everything you need. He knows even the tiny details of your life. And then flip over to chapter 10, verse 30. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Imagine that. God knows the numbers, the number of the hairs of your head. It's that, truly amazing. Every person, not just you. Um, he knows next. He knows all things even before they happen. Go back to Psalm 139. Verse 3, you searched out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Even before we speak, sometimes we don't even know what we're going to say. God knows what we're going to say. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. And then look at verse 16 in Psalm 139. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when I was, when yet, sorry, let me start this verse (laughs) over. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So God knows what's going to happen every day of our life before we're even born. So he knows all things even before they happen. And then this, and the C, the second part or the next part of the definition is that God knows all things possible. And this is truly amazing too. Um, all things possible, and, and we'll look at some passages that indicate this, but God has infinite knowledge. There, You think about creation. There were thousands of different possibilities. God knows each and every one of the possibilities that he could have done when he created and how that would have turned out. Um, but let's look at a couple of passages that show that God knows possibilities. Look, Turn to 1 Samuel 23. David is fleeing from Saul. Saul is king and David becomes anointed as king. God chooses David over Saul and Saul is trying to kill him. So David's fleeing, and he's hiding out, or staying in the city of, of Keilah, in ver, chapter 23, verses 11 through 13. So David is basically asking God, David's hiding out in the city, and he's, he's asking God about what's going to happen. He says, um, verse 11, will, will the men of Keilah surrender me? He's asking, he asked before this, will Saul come to the city to find me? God says yes, and then so David says, Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come. Then David said, Will the, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. And then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed. It didn't happen, but God knew what would happen. Um, so God knows all the possibilities. And then uh, Matthew, go back to Matthew. Chapter 11, verse 21, Jesus is talking about um, cities in the Old Testament. And he's, he's, he makes an interesting point in verse 21. He's talking about the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon. Um, and he, sa- he knows what they would have done had certain things took place, taken place bef- before. Look at verse 21. Well, let's start in 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So these mighty works had been done in these cities. The cities did not repent. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So God knows all the possibilities. He knows not only what we think and what we do before before these things happen, but he also knows the possibilities. And I'll give you a quote. This is from Grudem's Systematic Theology. Wayne Grudem writes, The fact that God knows all things possible can also be deduced from God's full knowledge of himself. If God fully knows himself, he knows everything he is able to do, which includes all things that are possible. This fact is indeed amazing. God has made an incredibly complex and varied universe, but there are thousands upon thousands of other variations or kinds of things that God could have created but did not. God's infinite knowledge included Included detailed knowledge of what each person, I'm sorry, what each of the other possible creations would have been like and what would have happened in each of them. And with David, we say such knowledge is too wonderful for me. God's knowledge is amazing. You see how his omniscience is far different from any concept that you have as a little kid of omniscience. Um, Next. The definition says that God fully knows, this is D, all things in one simple and eternal act. God's knowledge is one simple and eternal act. Here the word simple basically means it's not divided into parts. So, um, number one under D, God's knowledge is immediate. God Doesn't have to recall information like we do. Um, He doesn't have to pull up data. (laughs) He doesn't have to pull up data like a computer does. Um, If you ask, if you were to ask God to number the grains of sand on a particular beach, he would know the answer without having to think about it. It's immediate. He always knows all things at once. Again, Grudem writes, all the things he knows are always fully present in his consciousness. He does not have to reason to conclusions or ponder carefully before he answers, for he knows the end from the beginning, and he never learns and never forgets anything. I could use a little bit of the not forgetting anything. (laughs) Finally, one simple and eternal act. Uh, This is 2. God's God's knowledge never changes or grows. God's knowledge never changes or grows. It's eternal. I mean, if you think about it, this makes sense because if God could learn something, um, then what would that imply about his the state of his knowledge before he learned that? It's not perfect. It's not omniscient. So God's knowledge never changes or grows. Okay, to sum up the Bible's teaching so far, from all eternity, God has known all things that would happen and all things that he would do. And it's amazing that he knows everything about you, as David affirms. He knows what you would do or what you will do or what you're doing. He knows what you think before you think it. Um, And this brings us to the threat of God's knowledge. We as human beings try to hide, I don't care how transparent you think you might be, we try to hide our deepest faults and sins, even from those closest to us, even from ourselves. Um, We are laid bare before God. He sees everything, he knows everything. And this puts us sort of in the position that we saw Isaiah in last week when, when Isaiah was confronted with. God's holiness, his response is the response that all of us should have before an all-knowing, holy God, and that is that he he was undone. And this is basically re- refers to the threat of God's knowledge, that God who sees all and knows all. This is uh, number one. The thought of a God who sees all and knows all is unsettling. That's to put it mildly. Despite our best attempts to hide our sins from other people, we are laid bare before God. We are naked before God. Tozer observes that God knows each person through and through. Uh, the fact that God knows each person through and through can be the cause of shaking fear to the man who has something to hide. Some unforeseen sin, some secret crime against man or God. And you think about Adam. I know Dan mentioned Adam and Eve this morning. Um when they had sinned, they were naked before, but when they would sinned, their naked became a point of shame. They tried to hide from God. God came walking in the cool of the day to confront Adam on his sin. Adam and Eve hid from him. Um, their responses should be the response that everyone has to an omniscient God and is the response that everyone has to an omniscient God. We want to hide. We want to hide our shame and our guilt. Um. But the fact is we can't, and that's what David points out in Psalm 139. We can't hide from God. God sees everything uh, everything about us. Um, what did God do for Adam and Eve? He created, or he didn't create, he made a covering. Um, he instituted the first animal sacrifice for sin, and he covered their shame. And really, I mean, that's the basic message of Christianity. We're all laid open bare before a holy God. And God sees all of our sin, all of our guilt, everything, every thought that you've ever had that was wrong, that you don't even remember, God sees it and knows it. Every deed, everything you've ever done, God knows. And we, like Adam and Eve, hide that. God comes along. This is the whole message of Christianity. God comes along gives us a covering. Now when he covered Adam and Eve's sin it was temporary. It was a to foreshadow what would come later, but he provides the perfect covering for us in Christ. And for all those who are in Christ, we are now covered with Christ's righteousness. We're not covered with the skins of animals. We're clothed, if you will, with Christ's righteousness so that when God looks upon you, if you're in Christ, he doesn't see your sin and your guilt. He sees Christ's righteousness. And really that's the message of the gospel of Christianity. Um, Notice, however, if you would turn back to Psalm 139. David realizes this. He's meditating on God's knowledge. He realizes that or acknowledges that God knows everything about him. And notice what he says, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where shall I go from your spirit? (laughs) That's the question we'd be asking. Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In other words, if I go to heaven, the highest place I can find, God, you're there. If I go down to the lowest place, anywhere I go, God, you are there. I can't get away from your presence. And this is, the, this is the sinner's response to an omniscient God. Where do I go? Where can I flee? I can't flee anywhere. Um, so that's the, the threat of God's knowledge. Again, um, for those of us who are in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness, and that's, that need not be our response any longer. We should, however, have the joy of God's knowledge. And you'll see this. There's a subtle shift in Psalm 139, which I've never really noticed until I studied it this time. Um, he says in verse nine, "If I take the wings of the morning." You'll notice a subtle shift in the tone in verses nine and ten. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, "Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me shall be night," even the darkness. Is not dark to you. You see now God's presence starting to be a comfort to David. The night is bright, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, there's no place God does not see, and God will not be there. So now God's omniscience, God's presence is starting to take comfort for David. You formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So we see that David comes around to um, taking comfort and joy in the presence of God. Um, one commentator points out that God's presence began to take on a whole new meaning in verse 10. As a child of God, we can delight in God's knowledge of us because we've been clothed again with the, with the righteousness of Christ. Um, David ends up saying in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. So you see him really come around full circle. He starts off by realizing, hey, God knows everything about me. That becomes a fearful thing, and he wants to flee from his presence. And then he comes back around, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Um, Let me close this section with Isaiah 40, chapter 27, I'm sorry, chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. And many of you are familiar with the last two verses of this. um, But notice how it begins. Um, and then I want to get into a a couple of objections, or not necessarily objections to God's omniscience, but um, Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? So again, he's speaking to um, the nation of Israel, and he's asking them, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? Often when we Enter times of difficulty and trial, um, we often wonder, why is my way hidden from the Lord? And that's what he's dealing with. Again, talking to the comfort of God's presence. My way. Why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my right hand is disregarded by my God. I'm sorry, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall, shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice again, why is my way hidden? And then he says, his understanding is unsearchable. God is there. And so for the believer, for the unbeliever, God's presence is a dreadful thing. But for the believer, God's presence, it should be a comforting thing because there is nowhere we can go from his presence. And he's always there. His understanding is unsearchable, and he will give us strength. Um, so like Dan said, run. Um, <clears throat> okay, let me deal first off with... Uh, um, not This isn't an objection to God's omniscience. This is a, uh, a, a newer, within the last ten years, a newer position on God's omniscience. Um, and then I'll deal with briefly with an objection. Um, so there's a, a teaching, it's called open theism. Open theism basically suggests that God knows um, everything about the past and everything that's happening, but he doesn't know the future. In fact, he can't know the future. Um, because the future has not happened, and God cannot know the future if it has not happened. And if God did know the future, their reasoning goes, then then you don't have free choice. And so you see how his omniscience and his sovereignty is connected here? Um, And so, for example, if God knew that I would be teaching this Sunday school class this morning 50 years ago, then really, I don't have a choice in this, is kind of the way they they would argue. Um, and if you want to pers- if you want to think about what that means implication wise as far as God's sovereignty goes, and you weren't here two weeks ago, um, get the audio for two weeks ago because I dealt with God's sovereignty. Um, but the argument is that God can't know the future because if He does, then human beings don't have autonomous freedom, which I dealt with two weeks ago. So I'm not going to get into that. Um, the uh, the problem with this view is that it goes against the plain teaching of Scripture. Um, God obviously knows the future. I mean, we look at the verses where God predicts the future. We if if God could not know the future, then then prophecy what is that? I mean, what do we do with prophecy? Yes, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and create God. Time is a creation of God. The concept of time. Yeah, he's not. He's not. That's a good point. Um, so God, basically, the idea being that if for man to have autonomous freedom, which is a farce anyway, we don't have autonomous freedom, <laughs> um, but for man to have autonomous freedom, then God can't can't know the future, and so that's the argument of open theism, um, and it's not true. Um, I mean, you just read the Bible. I mean. I don't know how you come up with that. Um, Secondly, um, there are passages that suggest that God repents. So what do we do? Does God repent? What does that mean? Um, Turn to 1 Samuel 15. There are, like I say, a couple places that mention that God repents of something. Um, Two things need to be pointed out about God's repentance. The first thing is that um, God does not repent like man repents. Um, When the Bible describes God as repenting, it's using what's known as phenomenological language, which is a real fancy word. Basically, it means that he's describing God with human terms. He's describing God in a way that we can understand, that, that helps us to understand who's God, who God is. And so, um, first of all, it's the first thing to n- we need to realize, is that this language is not meant to be a precise um, description of God's actions. However, there is truth to the fact that God repents. Um, but we have to look at his repentance in a larger context of what the passage is teaching, and also at who God is. Um, secondly, God's ha- heart is much more, and this second point uh, I, I give credit to John Piper, uh, where, I, where basically this is his, his argument. God's heart is much more complex than ours, and he is capable of much more complex emotional response than we are. And even when we say um, that God repents or laments that something happened as a result of what he did, um, that doesn't doesn't mean that what he did was wrong. Like, so when we repent of something or we lament something, it's usually because we made a mistake, right? We didn't foresee something, and we chose a particular thing over another, and that choice ended up being the wrong choice, and we're sorry about that. Um, when God repents, that's not the case. When God repents, when he shows the emotion of lamenting something, um, it can be consistent with his omniscience. And, and even in human terms, it can be consistent. So, for example, if, um, <clears throat> if I have to discipline my son for extreme rebellion, let's just say that my son is in extreme rebellion and I spanking. Um, and as a result of the spanking, he chooses to run away from home. I would be sorry that my spanking led my son to run away from home. But in no way would I be acknowledging in that sorrow that what I did was wrong. And if I had to do it over again, I would spank him again. Y'all see that? So even even in human terms, we can have a, a complex emotional response to something. So something can indeed be right and good, and yet God can feel sorrow over what, humans choose to do as a result and that I think is what's happening in First Samuel 15 um, uh, let me see I didn't write the verse down so uh, the word of the Lord came to Saul okay yeah verse 10 the word, of the, the word of the Lord came to Samuel I regret that I'd made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments so this is the instance where God can, God is in no way saying that what he did by making Saul king was wrong because God is omniscient. However, he can still show remorse over Saul's response. And we, we get a picture of this. If you read this entire chapter, I mean, it, it seems very plain because if you look in, in verse 29, it says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Same word. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Um, God's repentance is not like man's repentance. Man repents because he doesn't have all the facts. He makes a choice that's wrong. God repents. His repentance is not like man's. Um, As Dan said in the sermon, God is not like us in every way. Um, So when the Bible uses phenomenological language, you have to realize that that's exactly what it is. It's trying to describe God in terms that we can understand him better, his response. But in the larger context of what of who God is, and even in passages like this where you have just at the end of the chapter, God is not a man that he should have regret. Um, you have to understand, it's not saying that God didn't know what was going to happen. It's just saying that God laments or he has an emotional response where he, he's, he's expressing sorrow over Saul's disobedience. Um, so... That was that's the main objection to God's omniscience, at least from a biblical perspective. Um, open theism—I um, don't even know how you get there—but um, it's 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 an intellectual response to a sovereign, omniscient God. Um, and um, but anyway, so anytime man has freedom, that's obvious from the Bible, um, but it's not autonomous freedom. And uh, so, anytime you have autonomous freedom and God's sovereignty um, in your mind not making sense, um, God's sovereignty should prevail. So, well, we are almost out of time, so let me close in prayer. Oh, I had a quote here I was going to give you. This is Piper, John Piper. Uh, for God to say, "I feel sorrow that I made Saul King is not the same thing as I would not make him king if I had to do it all over again. God is able to feel sorrow for an act in view of foreknown evil and pain, and yet go ahead and will to do it up with and will to do it for wise reasons and so later when he looks back on the act, he can feel sorrow for the act um, that was leading to the sad conditions such as paul 's disobedience um, again God is not a man that he should repent. Um, But he can be sorry for the results of his actions. Okay. Um, All right, let's close. Father, we thank you that you are infinite. We thank you that your knowledge and your wisdom um, is far greater than ours, and we just confess that at the front. We confess that um, even our grasping to understand you um, is so... It's um, so infant, it's so childish, and yet um, you've revealed yourself to us and so we can seek to know who you are. And so Lord, I pray that as we do so, you would protect our hearts um, from pride. I pray that you would protect our hearts from arrogance. I pray that it would humble us and give us a greater sense of who you are and a greater awe in your presence. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen.